0: On the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy.
1: Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? Very good. We're coming to you from the campus of Michigan State University. And today we have with us Clara Mattei, who is the author of the new book, The Capital Order. How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism, published in 2022. And Clara, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me on your podcast.
1: Great, thank you. Can you give us a brief synopsis on the theme of the book and what kind of cause you'd be interested to write this book?
2: Certainly. The book is an attempt to use a historical lens to reassess austerity, as a fundamental feature of our capitalist socioeconomic system. What spurred me to write the book is the fact that I've grown up in an austerity context. I was doing my PhD during the years of great austerity reforms in Italy in the 2010s. And I was struck coming across a scholarly article that was discussing the fascist economic policies in the 1920s, and the parallelism with the present were immediate and unequivocal. So that led me to look deeper into those years. And thanks to archival work that really uncovered the thinking of the experts that were wielding austerity in the 1920s, together with more of a theoretical perspective in the tradition of classical political economy that I gained from being part of the academic community of the New School, I was able really, I think, to finally put together a work in historical political economy that can be very useful to understand the present logic of austerity that we see today. So again, by looking at the origins of austerity, we can really capture its working, its function, and its main success in preserving what the title of the book is called the Capital Order. So the claim here, the main thesis, is that austerity, unlike what the Keynesian critics usually simplify by stressing how austerity is merely irrational economic policy, stemming out of wrong economic theory, the thesis of the book is that if we adopt a lens of class analysis, then we see that austerity is the opposite of irrational. Austerity is a very astute political project that is fundamentally a one-sided class warfare of the state and its economic experts against its own citizens in order to preserve the capital order. And by capital order, what I mean is capital as the fundamental social relation by which we are all accepting our condition as wage workers, our condition of people that have no alternative but to go work for low wage and precarious conditions in order to survive in the society, eat, sleep, study. And this condition that is at the foundation of economic growth under capitalism without wage labor and private property of the means of production there would be no capitalist economic growth well this socio-economic condition is not something that is stable and a given but requires constant protection so the claim of the capital order is that austerity is fundamentally essential for the preservation of capitalism as a socioeconomic system because it protects capital as a social relation and it protects it by foreclosing any alternative societies, any alternative ways in which we could actually organize production and distribution.
0: Do you think the notion of austerity is tied to the growth of government or more specifically, do the policies of austerity coincide with the growth of the welfare state in the late 19th century?
2: Thank you. This is very important. The book tells a story that takes place exactly 100 years ago. It starts with the Great War, the First World War, 1914-1918, exactly because it was a breaking point in the laissez-faire status quo Mm -hmm. until that moment. Because the state massively intervened in the sphere of the market in order to confront the war effort. So, war collectivism, the fact that the state became for the first time the main producer and the main employer, really repoliticized, and this is the thesis of the capital order, is that state intervention repoliticized the foundations of the capitalist society, the foundation, the pillars. Again, wage relations and private property of the means of production. So, this great state interventionism helped many citizens in Western Europe. And here I would like to say that the book takes place in two specific countries, Britain and Italy, that are the hub of advanced Western capitalism in the early 20th century. So, even in Western Europe, what became clear was that. The capitalist society was not a fact that came out of nature, but it was explicitly protected by classist choices of the state. And this is why the post-World War I moment was the moment of the greatest existential crisis of our system. And by existential crisis, I mean that, simply put, citizens saw that their societies could be organized differently. For example, there were, what you've mentioned, of course, was important was that it was, in fact, the moment in which the first forms of modern welfare state were enacted, not only during the war, but especially immediately after the war. So 1919 is the big year in which the welfare state is born, for example, in Great Britain and Italy. Exactly because Bureaucrats and government leaders were attempting to appease a population that was demanding a greater say in economic decisions and greater entitlements as ultimately as a reward for the great sacrifices during the First World War. So this appeasement, though, didn't really work because these efforts to reconstruct through social reforms of a very advanced type. So chapter two gets into the whole variety of very emancipatory understandings of state interventions, for example, to guarantee adult education or to guarantee public housing. Also in a very emancipatory perspective for women, so communal holiday homes. The Ministry of Reconstruction in Britain had proposals that have never really actually been implemented because of austerity, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so in this moment of great momentum for social change from a reconstructionist possibility through social reforms, but the social reconstructionism that was also triggering further demands for really getting rid of wage relations and private property of the means of production. So a whole series of alternatives such as guild socialism, cooperatives, workers' councils, And in all of this moment of possibilities for alternatives, austerity acted exactly to stop these processes, to halt them in the making and say there is no alternative but the status quo of capitalist exploitative society. The book shows how this moment of potential change was silenced by austerity as a very powerful reaction that took place right after the war, 1920, 1922, were the years of the great conferences in which the austerity code was put together, Genoa, 1, 1922, and before that, Brussels, 1920.
0: So I'm a little bit curious now because a lot of this sounds super familiar to me. Do you feel like austerity harkens back at all to older traditions and ideals in human history? like the need for self-sacrifice.
2: Yes, absolutely. So the claim here is that austerity is structural to the workings of capitalism, because in fact you do need the majority to, as the austerity motto goes, consume less and produce more. And this is a motto that I did not make up, but it emerges out of the archival uh, sources of the time. But as you put it, these were not necessarily novel concepts because from Adam Smith to Malthus already, you know, in the 1800s or the 1700s, it was clear that uh, prudence, frugality were part of the understanding of economic realism as uh, what we were meant to do. So this also gives a sense of how much economics as a discipline was always imbued by deep moral values. But at the same time, in fact, there were values that were essential for lesser capitalism to maintain itself. Because if we think about the gold standard that broke down during the First World War, and that was one of the reasons why it was possible to imagine an alternative, the gold standard required austerity because as soon as the state wanted to spend more on its citizens, this would immediately enact a capital flight and thus a loss of gold that had to be thus stopped through cuts in the budgets so that would cut imports and especially increases in interest rates. That is a crucial component of austerity. To conclude with your question, the point here of the capital order is to say, of course, austerity has always been part and parcel of capitalism, even before the First World War. But what is important to point out, and the reason why I focus on this early nineteenth. 19- 20s is to show that it became an explicit political project in the moment in which it was contested. So, austerity capitalism was contested in that specific moment because it was the first time in which people had actually gained political enfranchisement. Think about in the fact that in Great Britain, universal suffrage was achieved after the First World War, and this was happening all over Europe. So people were demanding greater political entitlement and hand-in-hand with greater economic entitlement. So in this moment of contestation of laissez-faire austerity capitalism, it is the moment in which in a way austerity emerges explicitly as a unilateral warfare against the citizens to prevent any changes and any subversion of capitalism as the only game in town. Okay, thank you.
0: So thinking about our role as economists, you wrote that the pillars of capitalism have to be safeguarded and people should accept the rule of experts. You discuss how economists of the early 1920s tried to depoliticize economics to protect capital. You also discuss, for example, how Keynes also thought in line with the impulse toward a technocratic regime. With this in mind what do you think the role of the economist should be in terms of public policy
2: okay so maybe we could qualify a little bit what you uh, said and then i answer the question because you stressed some themes that i have very much at heart themes that for the capital order tries to expose in a very explicit way so one of them is the fact that potentially we could define austerity first of all right because the book tries to give a different interpretation of austerity in the sense that austerity is not just fiscal cuts. It's not just about cutting the budget. Austerity is a trinity in terms of policy, but it's also theory. So it's a combination of theory and policy And this policy is more than just generalized cuts in the budget. This policy is about a trinity. It's fiscal, monetary, and industrial policies. And all three, fiscal policy meaning where the state spends, and it's about cutting social expenditures. So cutting the nascent welfare state and all public benefits, schools, housing, unemployment benefits, and paying back the debt, which means that you're shifting resources away from the majority of the citizens towards the saving investing minority that benefits from this decision of where the state spends. And then it's about regressive taxation. So again, taxing the majority while the minority is taxed, relatively speaking, much less. And this is again, something that we clearly see today. One has to keep in mind that right now in the United States, the 400 richest families pay lower overall tax rate than any other income group and this trend of regressive taxation began in the 1920s when workers were for the first time taxed when consumption taxes were massively increased and at the same time right consumption taxes that are clearly very regressive because they hit everyone equally and at the same time though they cut all the capital levies all the excess profit taxes that had been implemented during the war were cut right after the war. And so, for example, inheritance taxes that, of course, are those who would hit the wealthy. So fiscal austerity as being about shifting resources, both in terms of where you spend and in terms of the state revenue away from the people. Monetary austerity increases in interest rates that, again, have the Impact what does monetary austerity in terms of increasing interest rate does what well, we see it today as well. It not only makes it more difficult for working class households to borrow for and to buy a home, for example, mortgages and so forth. It also induces an economic downturn that has the effect of increasing unemployment rates and thus ultimately increasing competition amongst workers who lose the upper hand of being in a situation of a tight labor market, the labor market becomes the opposite of tight. People lose their jobs, thus have to accept lower wages in order to get back into employment. So the effect of monetary austerity is, of course, that of suppressing wages and increasing our market dependence. And finally, industrial austerity, which has exactly the same effect as the other two, because it's about directly intervening in the labor market through labor deregulation, privatization, and wage repression. So this austerity trinity, and this is what the capital order shows extensively, works in unison. And the three phases of austerity mutually reinforce one another with the same goal of disciplining the population into accepting a condition in which they have to consume less and produce more. Now, this set of policies are justified by specific economic theory. And this is goes back to your question about the role of economic experts and the so-called depoliticization of economic theory. The capital order gets into the paradox of an economic paradigm, which at the time was called pure economics. The founding father of the current neoclassical framework, which explicitly understood itself as being above classes, above bias, and fundamentally neutral objective truth. Now, this neutral objective truth, the paradox is that it was the most political process of all. So the depoliticization of economic theory served a very profound political purpose of Fundamentally disempowering the majority from having any say in economic decision making. And this is happens also within the models themselves, because you go from a labor theory of value in which the worker is the agent, the central agent of value production to a model that sees the saver investor as the new Engine of the economic machine through its capacity to abstain, right? So we go from the theory of surplus value and exploitation to a theory of abstinence and of virtue that only a select few, thanks to their individual virtue, can achieve. So we go from a model of classes and conflict between classes to a model of individuals and harmony between individuals in which those who succeed are those who deserve being richest and thus also deserve the state incentivizing their doing through austerity policies, right? Austerity policies make a lot of sense because they are incentivizing those who are seen as the engine of the economic machine that is the saver's investors. And this is why resources are shifted to them. So in this sense, we have this theory that is part and parcel of austerity. And this is why it's important to consider the fact that policy and theory go hand in hand. And one important component here is the urge to preserve the political immunity of the expert, the urge to find a realm that people cannot intrude in, by which only economists can actually make the most fundamental decisions for our society, for example, regarding monetary policy that, of course, have a direct effect on our daily lives, is not something that should be decided by the people, but should be kept to the expert. Now, currently. Unfortunately, we have normalized the idea that monetary decisions should be left to the experts. No one really questions the fact that the Fed, for example, right now and its experts are deciding on the interest rates. Now, what is interesting is the time I look at the early 1920s, it was not the case at all. And this is what something that Keynes himself saw clearly. It was a moment in which People were demanding democratic management of the economy. The Labour Party in Britain was demanding the nationalization of the Bank of England, for example. And it is in this moment that the crusade for central bank independence became so pivotal for the austerity project. And it's something that, of course, also Keynes very much agreed with. And Keynes really agreed with his colleague Ralph Hawtrey, who's one of the protagonists of my story, who put it bluntly, Ralph Hotchie said, central banks should never explain, never regret, never apologize, right? The clear idea that the expert should be left on its own to decide. So rather than depoliticization, if I could go back and rewrite this part of the book, I would probably use the term de-democratization, because it gives a better sense of what was going on, preventing democratic participation. And to conclude, I would like to say that while economic experts in Britain used the immunity, political immunity of institutions such as the Bank of England and the Treasury, who were made up of experts who did not have to run for elections, so they were really kind of protected, from what the general public thought. What happened in Italy, in a country that ultimately was experiencing greater revolutionary fervor, was that experts decided to side with Mussolini's nation fascist regime because they saw that it was only a dictatorship, a harsh dictatorship, that allowed for economic experts in this new paradigm of pure economics, again, the foundation of current mainstream economics, to be able to directly implement their models with the objective, as one of my protagonists put it, to tame men, right? In a moment in which the Italian population was being turbulent and asking for economic democracy, workers' councils, the occupation of the factories, experts pure economists wanted to fundamentally had a very platonic goal because they saw themselves as those who had reached the summit of the truth they had seen the beauty of the economic models and this is actually a metaphor they use themselves the celestial laws of economic truth right these logical syllogisms and though they did not content themselves with just admiring these abstract truths, they wanted to mold society in accordance with their models. And this is why they needed Mussolini and his political dictatorship in order to actually find a way to, without any political liability, be able to shape society in accordance with the austerity project.
1: What are the implications of your book for heterodox economists today whether they be institutionalists marxists post keynesians what would you think they could take away what are the lessons about if you're an economic expert what are the cautions perhaps of what role you play in society do you have thoughts on that
2: certainly so i think one lesson that the historical episode I reconstruct provides us with is the importance of using historical evidence to avoid idealizing capitalism as a socioeconomic system in the sense of avoiding the silence on the limits of our system. The idea that capitalism is a system that can be perpetually reformable and understood as a flexible animal, I think is something that is highly problematic. And I think it is a bias, for example, that some Keynesian economists have, because ultimately what the capital order tries to defend is that austerity is in the DNA of capitalism. You cannot have capitalism without austerity. There's very few historical juncture and very specific moments in which you can really have an alternative to austerity. But as soon as inflation kicks in, it's clear, and this even post Keynesians have to admit that once monetary stability is in danger, there is no way but to revert on ultimately to deflation and thus a hard dosage of austerity unless you want to be politically imaginative enough to breach the limits of capitalism itself. But then at that point, we wouldn't be in capitalism anymore because you would have to forego the basic pillars, which are wage relations and private property of the means of production through forms of planning, through forms of actually like self-governments of I- industry and so on. So I think this is important is to see that austerity is not just wrong. That's a very simplistic understanding. Austerity is not a wrong practice. It's a political practice which is necessary if we want to preserve capitalism. So in this sense, the ultimate lesson is that if we think austerity is bad, if we think austerity is ultimately authoritarian and repressive in the way it forces all citizens to accept a condition of ultimate dehumanization, and this is very clear if we look at American society today, the social disasters that are the results of austerity, And the insane inequalities. I was just listening today to the Financial Times economic update, and they were describing how there's this new business in building submarines for the billionaires who don't know where to do with their money anymore. And there's an enormous waiting list of people who are willing to spend millions on a submarine. While we very well know that the majority of Americans can't even get at the end of the month with their low wages working people who cannot survive, right? So this ultimate social catastrophe is not an exception to our economic system. It's, I would argue, the outcome of the very functioning of the capitalist economic system itself. And this, I think the majority of economists have to see explicitly, and avoid concealing this reality by depicting an idealized economy in which reforms could, in principle, be possible if only there were the correct economic theory available. It is clear that the problem is not the right or wrong economic theory. It's about understanding how capitalism works as an economic system. And I think this is where a Marxian tradition can be very useful also at present.
1: You know, there's been a lot of work about, for example, the so-called Chicago Boys in Chile. I think you mentioned that as well. Do you think some of these later austerity movements gained some influence from the earlier periods? So there was some continuance of ideas from the 1920s forward, and maybe it manifested itself in different ways at times. But do you think there's some continuity here of these ideas?
2: Absolutely. So the ambition of the capital order is to have a longer time frame, so avoid thinking of austerity as the outcome of the neoliberal epoch that, in fact, was pioneered by the Pinochet case in Chile in 1973. So the idea here is that austerity is not just an episode of the neoliberal period. We should stop thinking about neoliberalism and start thinking about austerity capitalism. And in this sense, that all the themes that the historical episodes of the 1920s expose are themes that recur throughout the 20th and 21st century. So chapter 10 of the Capital Order ties together the findings of my case studies with the Further episodes that are strikingly familiar once one understands what was going on in the 1920s, the same type of logic emerged, right? For example, in the Pinochet case, clearly we see the importance of a violent dictatorship for economists, because as I have this citation actually of Harbinger himself, one of the Chicago boys. That is taken by the way from a beautiful documentary that I don't know if you've seen called The Chicago Boys of 2015, which was very much censored in the United States. It was very difficult to find, but I've been managing to show it to my students. The coup opened the doors for the Chicago Boys, a select groups of Chilean economists trained at the University of Chicago under neoclassical gurus, Milton Friedman and Arnold. Harberger, to implement their Ladrillo, a brick-like document outlining a fierce austerity plan that successfully smothered the Chilean alternative to capitalism. Chile's Museum of Memory and Human Rights, opened in 2010 in Santiago, commemorates the human cost of a regime enabled in order to enact Chilean austerity. More than 4,000 people died, disappeared, or suffered repression during Pinochet's dictatorship. When asked about these incidents, Chilean economist Ralph Luters, himself a Chicago boy and a former minister of finance under Pinochet, lucidly pointed to the connection between austerity and political coercion, quote, and if you ask me if you justify the human rights violations, no, I find them awful, but it seems to me that it would not have been possible to make the change that was made in Chile without an authoritarian regime quoted from the Chicago Boys. The change he refers to brought about the usual proceedings of austerity, a surge of unemployment, 30 percent in 1983, accompanied by a rise in exploitation, which from 1971 to 1985 almost doubled. In those years, the share of corporate profits rose from 31.4 percent to 42.4 percent. Their proportion of wages decreased by 17.6%, while the proportion of profits increased by 10%. The poverty rate increased from 20% to 44%. But anyway, the point of reading this passage, which was probably too long, was to point out how the mingling of authoritarianism, economic expertise, and austerity is a constant theme of advanced capitalism and it emerges time and again in different socioeconomic contexts. So you can even think about the case of Indonesia and the Swarto dictatorship and the Berkeley boys, what happened under Boris Yelstein in the 1990s with the fall of Soviet Russia. And what you see here is that economists need authoritarian dictatorship in order to implement austerity when there is social contestation for austerity. But also another big theme that comes out of my case study is the support of the international liberal establishment for these bloody dictatorships when it comes to the capacity of these bloody dictatorships to implement efficient austerity reforms. So, the case that I look at is the fact that Benito Mussolini was a great student of austerity, of course, also because he realized that austerity was crucial for him to gain legitimacy and fortify his regime. And this was true not only for domestic liberal elites, so, Luigi Naudi, for example, and other character in my story. Luigi Naudi who's considered a great anti-fascist, and he was the first president of the republic after the fall of fascism in the 1940s. Well, Luigi Naudi immensely supported Mussolini's dictatorship for the whole 1920s with the excuse that he was doing the most efficient and correct economic reforms. And so this was true both domestically, but especially internationally. So I have Chapter 8 of the Capital Order is completely constructed through firsthand archival research to show how the British Embassy, the Bank of England, all of the American international financial liberal establishment had only praises for Mussolini. In this respect, I would like to read you just one important quote out of the many I have. This comes out of the Bank of England archives, and it was a 1926 letter sent by uh, Montagu Norman, the head of the Bank of England, to Jack Morgan of J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was hugely supportive of Mussolini. He says, fascism has surely brought order out of chaos over the last few years something of the kind was no doubt needed if the pendulum was not to swing too far in quite the other direction the duche was the right man at a critical moment and phrasing like this is all over the place also later on for example in the 1990s larry summers writes on the economist that sure boris yelston is a terrible dictator. He has basically bombarded his own parliament. But this is what we need in order to privatize and liberalize and really implement market reforms in Russia. You can't do it otherwise. And we don't even need to go to these extremes because authoritarianism and anti-democratic impulses of economic experts are also clear In the cases of parliamentary democracies, if you look at the ECB, for example, and it's a constitution, the the explicit project of its constitution was to avoid intrusion from political parties. And it's the most independent central bank of all, again, with the idea that fundamentally representative democracies are economically inefficient. So economists like Alberto Alesina, Silvia Ardagna, who've been so influential in promoting austerity in the 21st century, have no qualms in saying democracy is inefficient. If you want efficient economic policies, you need to preserve expertise from any intrusion coming from the general public. So, you know, again, to come to your question, these themes that I discover, and this is the attempt in chapter 10, is to really show how they continue till this moment.
1: Can we talk about, I guess, the other side? So in opposition to the capital order, you wrote about Gromsky, about the uh, Ordo Novisti. Can we tell you what was it they were trying to do? What was their thinking? And I guess a second part of that question is maybe why or do we see anything like that in today's time period, and or will we, perhaps?
2: Thank you for the question. I care a lot about the first part of the capital order because I think it's a historical reconstruction that stands on its own feet, in the sense that, of course, in the structure of the book, the first part is interesting for us because it shows what austerity was confronting as the fundamental disorder and the threat the capital order that austerity was meant to cure. But I also think that this first part of the book has an importance of its own in the possibility of inspiring current discussion about ways to think about the future of our society. And this is why my favorite chapter is potentially chapter four that is devoted, in fact, to the so-called Ordine Nuovo movement, the movement for the new order, which was led by Antonio Gramsci and Palmiro Togliatti in 1919-1920. It was the peak of it. And here we really see, I think, how in order to debunk bourgeois institutions, you needed to debunk the bourgeois worldview. And so how thinking differently allowed for acting differently, but you could really only also think differently if you acted differently. So the very concept of praxis that Gramsci elaborates in the prison notebooks when he's finally jailed by Benito Mussolini and reflects philosophically on political issues, these reflections come out of his actual experience in the Workers' Council movement of 1919-1920. And here we really, I think, have some inspirational points for us today, both in terms of institutional framework that they were suggesting. So the idea that councils were the hub of a new state, that really put at the center the representation of the people as collective producers. So the idea that there could be no separation between the political and the economic, but you could only have political democracy if it was grounded in economic democracy. So the denunciation of the emptiness of representative democracies in capitalism, because people were not sovereign in their decision-making at all. Even if there is, of course, the tradition of voting once a year, this did not mean that there was an actual say in what happens. And the alternative here was actually to think about these councils as locuses of actual horizontal decision-making in how you organize production and distribution. And it is through these democratic assemblies and the election of representatives that were not representatives that then would be completely detached from the people. Like also in the case of unions today, there's a very big problem of the verticality of the union representative of all was ultimately losing touch with its base because of taking on a different role and so having different material conditions. The idea of the councils was that the representative was always someone who could be actually recalled and it was a worker itself. And so this idea of connecting the economic to the political and seeing these alternative ways of understanding our political institution is for example, one of the insights The chapter gets into many others that I think it would take too long for us to discuss now. But I think here the idea is that alternatives were possible and are still possible. And this is where I think the work of someone like Camila Vergara, who has worked on the neighborhood council movement in Chile and the idea of a plebeian constitution that would actually subvert the systemic corruption that haunts our societies, is very important in the sense that she gives life to these intuitions of being real today, right? So the council movement takes now the form of neighborhood councils in Chile and in other places of the world. Of course, the mainstream media does not discuss these alternatives, but they are alive and well. And this is why, more than ever, experts know that austerity is still crucial to protect capital as a social relation, because this capital as a social relation is constantly threatened by alternatives that happen around the globe, are given little voice, but they are there. And I think there are a lot of commonalities with the Gramsci movement that I describe in chapter four of the capital order.
1: Yeah, very good. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. We really appreciate your time. Again, we were with Clara Mattei from the uh, New School for Social Research and her new book, The Capital Order. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for giving me the space to talk to you and to get some of the word out about the thesis of The Capital Order.